Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is sponsored by the official LGG Podcast Cantina Band, Lorem Ipsum and the Scriveners. Ben and Kirk, take it away. And welcome back to The Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers, or if they do have answers, we don't know what they are, with your host, Ben Siders, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. Actually, it's Missouri where we are. Yes. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter, at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod, and if that's all too much to remember, go to our very early 90s Captain Marvel-esque website, lggpodcast.com, and find our contact information there. Today's episode is about music. Yep, we're going to talk about music today, which is something we've, we've definitely touched on a lot already in the show. Yeah. But I think the, the comment of today's discussion, and I know you've gotten this from some listeners, is basically try to give you an overview of exactly how copyright works in music. Yeah, this uh, this is music is one of, I call it the most weirdly complex areas of law, and I used to just think it was because I don't do a whole lot of music day in and day out. It comes up a lot, but it, but like the nuts and bolts of music copyrights are, are not really part of my everyday practice. But then you and I met somebody who does do this all day and, and night uh, <laughs> at AIPLA last fall, and he basically confirmed yes, this area of law is psychotic. Yeah, and, and- I think that's the reason people have so much is it's, we encounter this, I mean, in many respects, you probably encounter it on a near daily basis. I mean, a lot of us listen to the radio, you know, you hear music playing in the background of your restaurants, you know, you're on Spotify or other streaming services, you're listening to CDs that you bought into your house, you encounter music all the time. Which you never think about, like, the legal background of it. And yeah. frankly, most artists don't either, at least not at the outset, uh, which is part of why <laughs> uh, certain artists have notoriously been um, disadvantaged by their contracts. <laughs> yes. Um, and definitely sort of issues like that. And you also have, I think, the other thing with the music industry, you have an industry which is very, very dominated by a few big players. Yeah. You know, and a lot of discussion, not just, and I think both from the artist point of view, you know, there are incredibly successful, you know, music artists that, you know, just dwarf what everybody else, you know, sells in the course of music or does in the course of music. You have people who work in the music industry professionally. And again, I'm talking about like like concert musicians Mm -hmm. playing at a local symphony. Obviously, they are professional musicians. But when people think of professional musicians, they tend to think of like rock stars. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. Music, uh, music industry has changed a lot in the last 20 years. We should say that. Probably more in the last 20 years than in the prior 100 combined. (laughs) Um, Although we're going to get into a little bit of that. But, you know, this one set of laws has to cover everything from the cover band playing Led Zeppelin songs at your local, you know, motorcycle bar to somebody playing a saxophone outside of Bush Stadium on the street to your streaming to your radio to your terrestrial radio uh, to, you know, how do you, you know, how do you, you know, produce to music by labels? And I think it's really, it's just, I mean, I found it very confusing until I dug into this, the role that the label really plays. I always used to wonder, what do they actually do? Yeah, there's so much, I think, and that's the other thing with it, is it's not just is the music industry confusing from a legal point of view. The music industry is confusing. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got agents, you've got artists, you've got, you know, cover bands, you've got, you know, 
managers, performing like, rights, licensing organizations. Yeah, and, how yeah. does all this stuff fit together? Well, so I've got, I've got a quote that, that perhaps uh, articulates this the best. This is from uh, Paul McCartney, and he says, quote, John and I didn't know you could own songs. We thought they just existed in the air, and therefore, with great glee, publishers saw us coming, end quote. <laughs> and we'll get into what a music publisher is because it's changed over the years too, but he's basically saying that you know people capitalized on their ignorance, not understanding how these copyright laws worked. And there was a famous incident in the early 80s, uh, you know, obviously long after the Beatles had broke up and, and Lennon uh, was dead, uh, that uh, McCartney was talking to Michael Jackson. And Jackson you know, was in the, the earliest days of his career and asked McCartney, what advice would you give me? And McCartney said, control your publishing rights. Get into publishing. That's where all the money is made. And so Jackson went out and bought the publishing rights to the entire Beatles catalog. <laughs> <laughs> Which McCartney now has gotten back because then Jackson, you know, when he died, I think Sony, I think Sony ATV picked it up. And I then, remember how the whole thing Yeah, worked. and then there's yeah. a reversionary clause in the copyright act that let McCartney finally get them all back in the U.S. Even just right there. I mean, you notice we were just talking about this sort of one amusing anecdote, and we don't entirely understand exactly how all these contracts <laughs> worked that went around it. And it's one amusing anecdote. You know, we're not getting into the, the sort of daily operation of this kind of stuff. Well, we thought a fun lens through which to explore the topic would be to uh, go after something nerdy, as is the uh, the theme of the podcast. And I think we mentioned in prior episodes, there is my, my favorite Christmas meme is the Captain Picard <laughs> Make It So compilation, which is just that song, Let It Snow. I think the official name is Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, uh, which was actually written in... In L.A. by people complaining about the weather. Uh, but uh, there's a version where clips of Picard and others from Star Trek The Next Generation yep. are cobbled together with a with a basically a karaoke backing track, and they just take one word out of context from each sentence to reassemble most of the lyrics to yeah. let it sow. The key one being, let, let, it so, <laughs> let it snow. <laughs> the key one being the use of make it sow, which they do actually yeah. keep together. Yeah, make it sow, make respects. it sow, make yep. it sow. And then they'll, they'll switch. There's one that has Data does a verse, and, uh, and yep. Riker does a verse and I think uh, Troy and Deanna do a verse. So if you haven't seen it, uh, we tweeted it out a couple weeks ago. We'll tweet it out again. Another example of this is, uh, you probably remember, uh, whether you want to or not, uh, the Carly Rae Jepsen song, uh, gosh, probably three or four years (laughs) ago now, Call Me Maybe, which everybody was in love with. Well, somebody did a Star Wars version of this which is just clips of different characters, again, saying one word at a time. And so you've got, you know, a half-second clip of the one word all strung together to form the lyrics to Call Me Maybe with the backing track to it. Yep. So it's it's very amusing. Uh, worth worth your time to listen to it at least once. It drives my wife nuts. She hates them, but uh, <laughs> I think they're hilarious. So we're not going to touch the issues associated with the use of the video clips because yep. that presents, other than sync licensing, we'll get into that, uh, but that, that presents a, a whole separate set of, of complicated problems about the copyrights to the actual video. Yeah, we're going to f- focus primarily on the, the idea of it just being sound. Obviously, these things do have video with it. Just to point out, like when you talk about sort of amusing co- correspondence with this, not only just in the idea of doing it with music, one of my favorite ones of these is actually the one that was generated by um, one of the groups, I believe it's at Stanford University, explaining fair use copyright law using only single lo- single words picked up from characters from Disney movies. Um, <laughs> which is, is sort of, a, yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot of this type of meme stuff going around there, some of which is is particularly focusing on copyright law, which is yeah. kind of amusing about it. But yeah, the 
these things are popular, but part of the reason that they're popular is because they're so funny, um, you know, when you do them. But it's one of those things where you can immediately see, hey, what is the copyright in this situation? And again, we're not even going to touch the video. We may touch on that later in the future, yeah. but we're not going to touch it today. The video applies to the extent of the sync license. We'll cover that towards the end. So at the outset, let's talk about, you know, you know so we're going to be t- we're talking mostly about Let It Snow for, for this yep. example, or, or Call Me Maybe if you like, but we're going to focus on Let It Snow. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 to the extent that there is audio in the Star Trek clips, they are part of an audiovisual work, which is different from a musical work under the Copyright Act. Yes. So what we're talking about does not necessarily apply to video games, movies, TV shows, you know, short films, things like that, just purely songs in isolation. And perhaps the most confusing thing here is that when we think of songs, I don't know about you all, or Kirk, tell me what you think, <laughs> I usually think of really a specific performance of a song. When yes. I say, you know, let it snow, I'm probably thinking of Sinatra, you know, or, or Dean Martin or somebody like that, or one of the more, re- Rod Stewart did one recently <laughs> of all people. Um, but you're thinking of like a, a version you've heard on the radio. Yeah. And I think that's one of the interesting things to keep in mind. I think talking about particularly let's use let it snow. Um, and again, not knowing if that's com- the exact complete title of the work or not. Um, those are works, you know, we talk holiday songs. There's a lot of people who have performed yeah, and recorded cover those them, basically. They cover them. Most of the time when we're talking about a particular song, we have one artist that has performed it that's strongly associated with it. I don't think anybody would deny who sang Yellow Submarine. I think everybody yeah. knows who sang that. Ringo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if I say, you know, that song, it's associated particularly with the Beatles, the Beatles, Beatles yeah. version. Um, now, at the same time, when we say that that's the song, that isn't really the song. No, it's it's not. And another good example of that is... Uh, um, oh, what was it called? A famous Whitney Houston song. Uh, so, so I will always love, love you, you from yeah. a bodyguard. Yep. Uh, that's the only version of that song that I'm personally familiar with. Uh, but it was written by Dolly Parton. Yeah, she owns the publishing rights to it. Yep. Uh, Whitney Houston was, you know, quote unquote, just the performer. Uh, but we're going to get into why that distinction matters. So. Basically, every musical work, the technical name for a song under the Copyright Act is musical work. Yep. A musical work is different from a sound recording. And this matters greatly because the musical work is really the, the song in the abstract. There's not actually a legal definition in the Copyright Act, but there are circulars and things that the Copyright Office publishes and courts have come up with definitions. And basically, the musical work is the the sequence and collection of melodies and notes and how long they, they're extended for that form the tune, basically. The, the way I usually put what is the musical work is I, I refer to it as the sheet music. Yeah. And, you know, anybody Although, who's been in band... Technically, the sheet music is a literary work, yes. which is separate from the song. Yes. But the, the when, you're, when you're looking at the sheet music, if you just look at the sheet music and realize that that's a collection of notes... You know, I can sit down and I can play that on piano, mm-hmm. or I can get the guitar version and play that on piano, or play it on guitar, or play it on flute, or sing it, or sing it, or any of those types of things. You know, from it, the the idea is that that's still the same song because it's still the same collection of notes as mm-hmm. to what it is. Um, what we don't have there is, and again, we we talk about being a literary work. The almost way to think about it, and maybe the best way to think about it, is if you happen to be particularly skilled at playing by ear, so you can hear a song once and be able to, you know, repeat it on whatever instrument you are capable of playing, the song is what transferred between you listening to it on the radio and you playing it on your guitar. That is the musical work. Yeah. It's your, it's your sort of perception. Like, if I say let it snow right now, if you're listening to this, you've almost certainly heard that song, yeah. and it's probably going to be stuck in your head by the end of this, this episode. There's a great joke that he said with, the, with are you a children of the are you a child of the 80s? And one of the great ones is they said, finish the following line, and it starts with shot through the heart. And you're too late. Very good. 
three questions later is, are you still singing Bon Jovi? <laughs> Which was a great Kirk. sort of comment. At the, at Kirk, we're going to get all kinds of hate mail from them. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay, anybody who's still singing the song now, like you get to yeah. answer yes to both questions. Yeah. Speaking of which, so I'm going to tweet this out. There's a great uh, a mashup of uh, that song overlaid with Belinda Carlisle's Heaven is a Place on Earth. <laughs> I think Orbital did it. Okay, it's terrific. So go, go look that up. It actually it actually worked pretty well. Okay, so, so these two copyrights, you've got one in the song in the abstract, and there's a separate copyright in a recorded performance of the song. And I say recorded performance because there's no copyright in an unrecorded performance. And this is a requirement that applies to everything copyrightable. Yes. It has to be what they call, is it fixed in the tangible fixed medium? Fixed in the tangible medium is this yeah. particular phrase that she used. Now, again, what is fixed in a tangible medium? An audio recording is fixed in a tangible medium. Writing sheet music is also yes. fixed in a tangible medium. Um, so the medium is not as important as the fact that it is fixed and it becomes... Basically, it's written down somewhere, and yeah. by written down is an air quotes, meaning I can play it back or perceive what it was. It's basically evidence. Yeah. There has to be some evidence of what the copyright is. Likewise, if you give up and give a live speech, you know, if someone records it, your speech is now copyrighted and you own it. If nobody records it, it's not. Yeah, and actually a good place in music where this became an issue was the, the sort of early days of jazz mm-hmm. because, you know, jazz is about improvisation. It was about presentation of what the music is supposed to be based upon the specific circumstances during which it was being played. Yep. Um, so the, there was a lot of argument that you could not actually record jazz. Yeah. It, it was an impossible medium to record. You can record a performance of a jazz song, but yes. since since it's, it's recorded at that point, there's no improvisation and it's no longer quote-unquote jazz. Jazz, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's a great sort of, you know, kind of with the idea that it was, a, it was a musical form that essentially required live performance and couldn't have written music. Now, there was obviously structure yeah. in how the improvisation worked. But Were you ever was, in jazz band? I was in jazz band. So you've seen how jazz sheet music is written. Yes. There's just like a, like a 16-bar segment that repeats for every instrument yep. and it just says solo and then each person gets up one at a time and plays 16 bars of improv, none of which is in the sheet music. Yeah, and all of which is usually terrible when I was in high school, oh, except for the like awful. two people who are good. Yeah, yeah. I would always <laughs> forget which note was the blue note in, in my scale. And then, and, it, and if you've ever heard somebody miss a note by a half step, oh, yeah. oh my gosh, it sounds awful. Like, oh, there's supposed to be a B flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have done that as well. Um, yeah. You know, There's only two ways to go, man. You either pretend it didn't happen or you lean right into it like you did it on purpose. <laughs> if anybody complains, you're like, you just don't understand jazz. <laughs> what are they going to say? Yes, I do. Um, so yeah, so um, so you got the, the, the music itself and the performance are two different things. So, you know, to understand this best, so suppose you and some friends are in a band and you're going to jam. If, if you're just kind of sitting around making up songs and playing them, and I was in a, you know, a, a really crappy band in high school, uh, and that's what we did. We'd all get together on the weekends yep. and gather at my friend Aaron's house uh, in, his, in his little shed outside, and we'd all play songs. None of them were recorded. I could get my guitar out and play most of them right now, but since none of them are recorded, there's no actual copyright in any of them. Yeah, and that's and again, it's nowhere been fixed in a tangible medium. Yeah. And I think part of the reason why we had this sort of fixed in a tangible medium, one of which is you got to remember the origin of copyright. And we've gone over this. Printing presses. So the origin was the printing press. And so we're talking about, you know, hey, we're, we're now making it something where you can yeah. legitimately make lots of printed copies. The purpose is in the name, copyright. Yeah. It's the right to make copies. And so we have to have the tangible medium because the idea of just saying, hey, if we have an oral tradition and somebody passes down an oral tradition, is that really a copyright infringement? No, because copyright came into play because of the printing yeah. press. We 
kind of covered that in some of our prior episodes about cultures that don't have a strong literary tradition where things yep. are passed down by oral history and whatnot and how, you know, these institutions are designed by, you know, honestly, the West, you know, the, the British, really, for copyright. The British, yeah, the British. Which, which we just inherited. And so other cultures that don't have the same, um, you know, sort of desire to write everything down the way that yeah. we do, uh, you know, the copyright doesn't make any sense to them. So, so yeah, so if, if, if nothing's, you know, and so there's two ways you can get the copyright. One, write out the notes. Now yep. you've got a copy. It's fixed in a tangible medium of expression. Yep. Or just record the performance, in which case you've actually made two copyrights, one to the song that you've recorded and one to the recording that you just made. But those are actually two different copyrights that might be owned by two different sets of people. Yep. Now, did we just throw you? And, and yeah. I think that's an important thing to note there. We just said that you, when you're just sitting there playing the song around, you don't have a copyright. As soon as you write it down, you get one copyright. As soon as you record it, you have two, you two. copyrights. That might not be owned by... So let's go through an example. Let's go back to Yellow Submarine, all right? So we got John, Paul, George, and Ringo, yep. right? Um, they're going to record Yellow Submarine. I don't know who wrote it. I, that sounds like a Lennon to me, but who knows? <laughs> um, so let's just assume it's Lennon and McCartney because they're credited with all that stuff. Uh, Ringo is singing and... Uh, or Yeah, Ringo's singing and on drums and we got George, right? So, you know, let's, we're in the studio. They're still just kind of coming up with it. They're jamming. They've got their uh, producer there. They start playing the song, uh, and they rec- make a recording of it. Yep. Well, you know, John and Paul are the authors of the song. They own the musical work because they wrote the mu- music, they wrote the lyrics, they own all of that. Uh, but the performance is owned by all four of them because they're all form for part of the performance. Yep. Now, that's how it would work by default. In reality, you've got contracts with studios and record labels and the copyrights get transferred. But the default rules are, if you know, Kirk, if you and I got some instruments in here and started playing, this is being recorded. I'm looking at our sound engineer right now to make sure that's true and he's waving at me. Um, so yes, if we were to start recording something, then uh, you know we would have a joint copyright in whatever the performance was, regardless of which one of us actually wrote it. A good example of this, and I think one that just sort of as a, as a sort of fun example, if you guys know, it is the Million Dollar Quartet. Uh, for those of you guys who know what that is, that was the essentially jam session by Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley, and I'm as, the fourth one's escaping me is the one I shouldn't forget because he's the one who always gets forgotten in conjunction with it. Um, that was effectively them just jamming in a studio, um, you know, and and you know saying their. Uh, you know, doing, doing their respective sort of components in conjunction with it and happened to have a sound engineer who wandered into the, the sound studio, realized this was an incredible piece of music that he was hearing and recorded it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's truly the example of recording a jam session almost without knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's, if you've ever heard it, it's a sort of an incredible piece of music. Um, and the part of the fact of just who it is is who it is. Mm-hmm. You know, these are artists that basically never recorded together otherwise, um, all of whom at that point in time were probably truly stars in their game. Mm-hmm. Um you know, we're, how do we suddenly create a copyright? It like, seems weird, right? Yeah. Somebody happens to turn a tape deck on, now there's a copyright, that's how it works. And that's somewhat how it works. And again, it's the thing that I always think is interesting about copyright, and again, I tie back to that copyright came out of the printing press, it's amazing how much copyright is still tied to machines. Well, we're going to talk about that, that too yeah. when we get to the mechanical license, which is another topic people wanted yeah. us to cover. But that we've created copyright by tying it to a machine, by tying it to paper, by tying it to an audio recording thing, yeah. something along those lines. So uh, going back to Make It So... Uh, you know, well, I guess we got to start with Let It Snow. So it was written by Sammy K- uh, Kahn and Julie Stein in 1945. The performances that you've heard on the radio are probably either Vaughn Monroe, 
uh, Frank Sinatra or Dean Martin. There was a Carly Simon version in 2005. Like I said, Rod Stewart got in the game. <laughs> I'm Huge sure there's more. Huge numbers of people have recorded this It's song. been done over and over and over. But the song was written by Kahn and Stein. So they are the owners of the musical work. Yep. But then, you know, Monroe, Sinatra, Martin, et cetera, would all be the owners, you know, absent contracts, you know, signing the rights to, you know, record labels, yep. they would own the copyrights in their performances. So how does how does this work when it comes to, um, you know, the, the make it so? Suppose I want to uh, sell, and I don't know why you would do this, but I want to sell a CD that's got the, the Captain Picard make it so <laughs> version on it. <laughs> yeah, who would um, buy that? <laughs> you know, can I do that, and whose permission do I need? And it, it should be obvious that I need the permission of the songwriters. It's their song. Yes. And so... You know what? You know what we're basically doing when we when we make make it so is creating a new performance of that song, just like uh, the Monroe or the Sinatra or the Martin performance. Now, I think the one thing we've got to keep in mind here when we're talking about the idea of the make it so being a parody, when we're using Picard doing it, we have a different artist other than the person who's made this actual yes. connection. And maybe one of the initial ways to think about this, and the easier way to think about it, is let's assume you just sing. Yeah, those let's start lyrics. with that. I'm just going to sing it right now. Yeah. Like, what what rights do I have to have? Well, first of all. You know, it would be a public performance. Well, this isn't because nobody else is here. But when this gets released and you listen to it on the podcast, it's now a public performance of the song. So at that point, and and this is why these two different sets of rights matter, is because what you get with them is different. Yes. So for the rights to the song itself, I've got to get permission from uh, Kahn and Stein, or more likely their estates at this point. They wrote this in 1945. uh, And, you know, the copyright still exists. We we, we believe it still exists. Yeah, I haven't checked, but I would assume. Um, we have to get permission from whoever owns the rights, their publishing company, to perform that song publicly, and we have to probably pay a royalty for that. Mm-hmm. And you know, the practical reality is, you know, if we were in, you know, let's say we we're in like a bar, the venue probably has a performing rights license through ASCAP or BMI or one of these companies. And all you do, like that's how cover bands work, you provide your set list to the venue, they submit it to whoever their contact is at the collective rights licensing organization, so they know what was performed, and then those organizations are responsible for figuring. Figuring out who owns the you know who owns the rights and who the royalty should go to, yep. so it makes it easy on cover bands and live performers and people like that. Yeah, and I think one of the key things about this is it's we've all heard of these rights organizations. I mean, most people have heard of ASCAP, BMI, oh, yeah, CSAC, which are really the three. Yeah, but nobody knows what they do. <laughs> yeah, nobody doesn't know what they do. Um, I, I joke about it. If you want to actually hear a, a sort of amusing about it, there's a parody song by Cletus T. Judd of country songs um, called "The uh, Stoled the Copyright Infringement Incident," um, and he actually references you. Know, as one of the lyrics, as caps, you know, CSAC BMI. Um, so you, know, you, you definitely bump into these, even in popular culture that they're out there. We hear about ASCAP licenses, we hear about BMI licenses. What these basically are is, pro- is public performance licenses. And they basically say that, okay, if I have a venue and I wish to have music performed on the venue, and we're going to get into a second about what do we mean by performed. This doesn't necessarily yeah. even mean live artists. Because performing is one of two things, either a live performance or a performance of a previously recorded performance. Performance, yeah. Um, and so you've got these kind of things. I'm allowed to perform everything that those rights holders have the rights to authorize me to do. So again, like if you're going to be, you know, particularly cautious as a restaurant, you may say, I'm going to get all three licenses so I can play essentially anything that's any of them own. I just have to make sure it's reported to the right agencies. Some other people may say, hey, look, I only want the artists that are in a certain license or I'm only going to allow artists of a certain license to be played. So therefore, I only have an ASCAP or I only have a BMI license. Um, you know, those type of things are out there. I remember one of the ones that, that you know, I actually encountered at one point in time, we had a question that arose where um, we had a, a, a person who received a notice from ASCAP saying they were in violation 
um, of their, you know, of the ASCAP license because they were playing music and didn't have an ASCAP license. And it was a very interesting situation because the owner of that particular facility was actually extremely opposed to a couple of artists that had licensed to ASCAP. And so he did not have an ASCAP license. He had a BMI license. Mm -hmm. But he had very, very specifically selected the music for his location to only Only be be under a BMI license. We should say artists generally have one or the other, or in occasional cases, CSAC is the third one. CSAC's sort of the third small one. But it's sort of a, it's a bunch of, no offense to to the companies, it's effectively a bunch of of private cartels, right? Like you, you pick one of the three because they're already entrenched, they're already everywhere. So there's no reason to go make a new one. And and frankly, the licensing terms are pretty reasonable. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing with it is, is as much as you can say it's a cartel and they may have a bad negative connotation of a word, these things work extremely well. Yeah, it's very effective. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's if you have a you know facility, again, and you want to play music as to what it is, you are, you buy these licenses, they're relatively straightforward. They're relatively sim- simple terms. They're to the not point where it's embedded in the act, right? Yeah. Like if you go to the definition of a, of a collective rights licensing organization, the Copyright Act, it basically says things like ASCAP and BMI. Yeah. Like he calls them out by name. <laughs> yeah, and so, and that kind of thing with it. And again, it's part of the reason this exists is because it does make this very simple. The idea of how do you deal with these performing performances. And Otherwise, how would you manage this? Yeah. Like, how would you know, uh, you know, th- I'm going to go to, I'm going to open a bar and I want to play music. H- how do I know what I can play? Or your hotel or a restaurant, you know, yeah. you, you get you get a license or, or you subscribe to a service like Muzak that, that comes with a license. Yeah, and that's, that's the other thing to keep in mind is there are also services which come with the license yeah. to do these. Important thing is you can't just turn the radio on. I, there are places that do that they're not supposed to but you can't just put a boom box in uh well, I, I guess if you have a venue license and you keep track of it, maybe you could. Um, There's also issues in replaying public radio because that falls under a broadcast license. Yes. Is everybody getting confused yet? Yeah. This, like um, I said, this is complicated. We can't even hope to untangle it all. Yeah. So th- there's also issues having to do specifically with terrestrial radio. Recognizing this does not mean streaming, and this does not mean digital, digital radio. or satellite. Um, or satellite radio. This means terrestrial radio. There are specific things having to do with the way broadcast licenses were written in radio that in certain circumstances you may be able to use, just turn the radio on and just yep. use the radio. Let's back up and talk about what the different sets of rights are with these. Yep. So with the musical work itself, you get the stuff you'd expect. If you're the author of a song, musical work, you have the exclusive right to make copies, yep. to distribute copies to the public, and to publicly perform the song. And I think the thing to keep in mind again let's drop to the idea of what is the person writing it let's take this as the sheet music recognizing yeah. that there it's the is composer something or the songwriter it. or the lyricist yeah. which is all kind of the same thing yeah it's but the with the sound recording is different yep. there is no public performance right to a sound recording except for digital transmission well re- reproduction re- transmission of the exact reproduction right yep. right now there is a copyright you have the right to copy and distribute copies of a sound recording. So I can't just print all the copies I want of a CD and hand them out. But for the sound recording itself, there's no public performance right. So that means when I hear a song over terrestrial radio, let's go back to uh, Yellow Submarine. It was just on radio this morning, in fact. So I hear that over the regular you know, earthbound radio station, Lennon and McCartney get a royalty because they own the copyright to the musical work, but the public performance is by all four of them. Lennon and McCartney, none of them get anything for that, right? So only well, two people get Presumably there may be a separate arrangement. 
Yeah, and this is a separate arrangement. But by default, there's no there's no statutory right for any of them to get a payment for the yep. public performance. So when you hear things on the radio, the songwriter gets paid, the performer doesn't, unless they're also the songwriter. So going back to Whitney Houston, every time you heard So I Will Always Love You, Dolly Parton got money, and yep. Whitney didn't get anything. It's, it's one of the sort of old jokes I remember sort of hearing this where people talked about it, and I've heard about it from certain musical artists, that the real money isn't writing the song, assuming that the, money, the thing's successful. And it's not just in the idea of, of songs on the radio, you have to realize that, you know, every time a song gets played, you get basically get a royalty for the, the amount of time that it's played. Now, obviously, that may be not a per-use thing, but think about it this way of, you know, what can that mean? What if you are the bumper music that goes from a famous sitcom to a commercial mm-hmm. that plays three times every show on a show which is syndicated across 12 stations? That's a lot of plays. That's a lot of plays of this little eight-second piece of music, um, you know, and things like that. And, and that's you, exactly right. And you generally negotiate some sort of other arrangement rather than going through the, the basic royalty system. Yep. So there's a real oddity with all this, too, that comes up in the context, which is, as I think, becoming less and less important over time, although the, the recent Music Act did address this to some extent. But it's a concept we have called compulsory mechanical licenses, <laughs> which is honestly one of the weirdest things I've ever run into in the law uh, because we have it because of what, Kurt? Because of the player piano. The player piano. So to understand this, you kind of have to go back in time and, and think about it's it, you know think about when the Constitution was written. We're talking the late eighteen hundred or late eighteenth eighteenth century, <laughs> late seventeen seventeen seventy six. It's Friday. Um, <laughs> Well, actually, the Constitution yes, was written that. after that. Yeah. <laughs> or after um, that, sorry. So, uh, so, but yeah, so they have a copyright act. So, it, you know, this 18th century, how do you consume music as somebody who wants to listen to a song? You have to go and listen to people play it. Yeah, you either play it yourself or listen to somebody else play it. There is no other option. We have yeah. no recording technologies. We have no broadcaster transmission technologies. And we didn't really until the early 20th century. So the original Copyright Act had no protection for songs whatsoever. It wasn't added for almost 40 well, years. When we say songs, we say recordings. Again, or songs. Neither one was covered by the original act. They did add musical works later, but it was mainly concerned with sheet music because, again, that's all yep. there was. And and the rights were concerned with the publication of sheet music or the publishing rights to the song. And it's really the only rights that there were, and then public performance now, rights came reason, on later. And this is where I like to talk about the idea of sheet music is because, again, taking back at this time, remember, that was the only way to fix music in a fixed form. Yep, there is no there audio was. recording at this time. So I think that's why a lot of times, and again, I, I sort of default back to there, of the idea that the, the, the musical work is the sheet music because, in, in many respects, that was the starting point. What we then had is we had a creation of a technology that added two new forms, um, in some respects, of, of reproduction. And the thing with that is, and again, when you now talk about it, is we say, how does a player piano work? Well, this is where it got weird, right? Because the publishing rights were to the sheet music. Yep. But a player piano is just a big cylinder... And, and you roll a sheet of paper or a giant roll of paper with a bunch of holes punched in it. And so the people who were making these weren't paying any royalties to the publishers of the sheet music who said, hey. Because that's it's not a, the sheet music. Yeah, this is a bunch a, of dots. This is a copy of my song. And they said, no, it's not. It's a giant roll of paper with holes punched in it. How can that be a song? And a, a big fight emerged and Congress got involved and uh, a, a, a detente was reached basically where yeah. they said, all right. They said, we don't want the music companies to establish what they called music cartels or music trusts, which would hold all these music rights in a, in a handful of small hands and prevent the public from being able to enjoy 
enjoy these songs and these works. Yep. So they said, you, the music owners, the rights holders, the, the songwriters, and the publishers, you guys, uh, you know, you're entitled to a royalty for the sales of these, these roles to the player piano. However, you are not allowed to have a monopoly over it completely. If yep. somebody else wants to make these piano roles and play your songs on player pianos, you are required by law to let them do that, and they're required by law to pay you a reasonable royalty for doing that. But yep. the important thing is, once you've published your sheet music, you can't stop them. And that's where the compulsory part of this comes from. The mechanical part comes from... It, it was, was a player piano. It was a mechanical reproduction. <laughs> That's the other thing. It was not a person giving a live performance of the song. It was just a machine reproducing the tones. Yep. And there was some debate whether that was even going to be considered a performance. And the other thing to keep in mind about this is a player piano is also actually playing the song in a way that like a CD player or a record does not. So keep in mind the idea that if you have a player yeah. piano and I remove one of the strings... It will play a different song yeah. than it will without it. The piano it. is not playing a recording of a performance. Yes. It is making a new performance, and importantly, who do you sue? There's no person performing yeah. it. And it's also, but it is doing that, again, from a recording, which is the sort of dot-generated things. And it's, again, if you go into the, the structure of player pianos and the way player pianos are made, it's a real key thing that, like, you couldn't necessarily reverse engineer the notes um, of a piece of music from looking at the piano roll because mm -hmm. it would depend on what piano that had been made for. Um, it would depend on exactly, you know, how, how well you could interpret it. You're looking at something which was designed to be read by a machine yep. in a very mechanical machine at the time, a very sophisticated mechanical machine at the time, but a very mechanical machine. This is how uh, covers work now, and, and really any one of you could do this if you wanted to. Um, there is a company that manages almost all of these, the Harry Fox. Harry uh, Fox, yep. yep. Harry Fox. Just Google Harry Fox, and he'll have a, has a whole website about this. I, I would guess Harry Fox controls 80%. Uh, they, they seem to definitely control a huge amount. I, mean, I think there are a few others, but I think yeah. Harry Fox is The, the rates universal. are set by the copyright rate board, so you know I think Harry Fox charges a little bit more for the convenience of going through their organization. But you know there's only so much money to be made here. And again, there's sort of a commercial detente that's been reached, and, and it just it, it works. Everybody knows how to yep. how to work it. But anybody could, if you wanted to, if you want to release your own version of Abbey Road, you could get together your band, record every song on there, and release it, and nobody can stop you. So long you, as Harry Fox owns the rights to all yeah. the songs on. Now, when I say release it, I mean make your own CD, ship them, and sell them to the public. And that assumes, yeah, you can go to Harry Fox. You assume he has the mechanical licenses or can get them. If not, there's another way to go about it. you got to give notice to the government and all this other stuff and, and pay these royalties. But uh, it, it can be done. You have to pay, uh, for the most part, Lennon and McCartney because they own most of the songwriting rights. But the important thing is those rights go to um, – just the songwriters, because yes. you're not using the sound recording of Harrison and Starr, or even Lennon and McCartney for that matter. You're making a whole new sound recording. So going back to Make It So, yep. this is a really weird one because we are using a recording of the song. It's the backing track that's got the music and sort of the, the flute in the background. But it doesn't have the lyrics. But it doesn't have the lyrics, so there's that part. And then, so who, who gets paid here? Uh, I believe Khan was the composer and Stein was the lyricist, or maybe the other way around. I don't know. I'm afraid. So. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't remember. I looked this up on Wikipedia before we came in, and I forgot who was who. But one person wrote the tune, yep. and one person wrote the and lyrics. That's common. In that's history. common, and it's also an oddity in U.S. law. I think that the lyrics to a song are considered a part of the song and not separately copyrightable normally. Yeah, that's an important thing to keep in mind. The United States, and this is different from other countries. In the United States, a song is the music plus the lyrics, yes. and uh, having a separate songwriter and lyricist. Um, 
is means that they're treated as a collective entity yeah. writing the song. There's no separation between them, sort of ever. So if I'm if I'm guessing, Con and Stein's uh, uh, copyrights were assigned to a publishing company. Yep. Uh, probably they were considered joint authors of the work because yep. they split up the division of labor. They probably each got 50-50 royalties, or something, know, sort of, or something like that, or whatever it was. They have some arrangement. So for uh, for make it so, since there is a performance of the song, including the lyrics. Yep. Uh, and the backing uh, track, they get paid. Now, they right? would probably get paid if you truly did just play the music with no lyrics because of, again, that uniqueness yeah. in the United States where it's the song is considered the joint piece. Taking only half of it would probably still be considered an infringement, would probably still require the license, so therefore you'd have to pay for the yep. full song even though you only used a portion of it. But then you're also using the backing track, and whoever performed that owns a copyright in that performance of the backing track. Correct. So technically... If it was broadcast over the radio, they don't get anything. But since you're watching it on YouTube, they do. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the, we, we haven't quite gotten to digital yet, but digital gets different. Yeah. So sound recordings do have something digitally. So you have to figure out who had that backing track and make sure that you have a license to you know, digitally broadcast a performance of the backing track. Yep. <sighs> now, there's one more complication with this. It's a YouTube video. Yep. It's not just a song. <laughs> we have synchronized the song, kind of? To a series of sync images? License. Uh, it's, so yeah. you need a synchronization license. Yep, sync Which isn't licensing. covered by any of this stuff. There is no mechanical license for to sync. Um, that is a special license that isn't even really... I mean, the, the right itself is sort of hidden between the cracks of the Copyright Act. Um, it's yeah, not I don't specifically, think it's specifically laid out. called out. The, the issue you get into with synchronization license, and again, one of the key things I think to really think about is we're, we're sort of walking through an evolution of copyright. We started at the, the you handwrite music, and that's the only way to record it in a fixed form. We then moved to the idea that you turned it into these piano rolls, and those are you know a new way of recording it in a fixed form. We then moved to the idea of an audio recording, and move it to a fixed form, we now have the concept of video recording and you now put the audio recording and the video recording together so that when the video recording plays, the audio recording does as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the real key thing to keep in mind about this is you think about the idea of like watching a movie without a soundtrack. If you've never done that, um, it dramatically changes the nature of the movie. I know it's popular now. A lot of symphony orchestras will do where they play the movie in a background yep. and they play the soundtrack live. Um, you know what we're talking about in these kind of things is synchronization, and that's the idea of putting the music to a moving image. Now, the question you bump into is, isn't this a series of still images? Well, it's probably still a ser- moving image. It's still, it's still considered an audiovisual work. It's still an it's a series work. of still, yeah. yes. Even though there's no audio. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think those are the things you sort of bump into. And the really interesting thing about synchronization licenses is, quite frankly, I think a lot of people run afoul of copyright law unintentionally when it comes to synchronization licenses. It's easy to overlook because none of these... So we have all these sort of entrenched industry ways of doing this. You've got Harry Fox yeah. for, for mechanical. You've got ASCAP and BMI for public performance rights. It all just sort of happens seamlessly behind the scenes once you're in this industry. Yeah. But there's, there's no system like that for sync licenses. If you want to use the recorded version, you've got to go to the music label that owns the copyright to the performance and get it. And then you've got to go to the publisher that owns the copyright to the song and get it. And you need the sync license from both. Yep. And this is part of the, I think, the issue of why sync license doesn't necessarily have an agency around it is because there are two rights holders 
always implemented. Not always. And they don't always like each other. <laughs> yeah, but not always. But I mean, in the vast majority of cases, you have two rights holders implemented yeah. by the sync license because it is a performance of the recording, so yep. therefore triggers that second right. Whereas when we're talking a live performance, we're talking about a pure mechanical, it's recorded yep. by you. So then, yeah. yeah, so you can simplify this. We talk to video game people about this a lot because they want to use songs in their video games. Yep. You know, and so when you go download those, you know, free to use song clips you find on websites, that's the thing to make sure you find. If video game is an audiovisual work yep. and, and a literary work and all kinds of other things too. And the other, other thing with it is when you start talking about sync works in particular, this is also an area where a lot of times the reality of it is if you want to have music in the background of your video game, hire a composer to write and record it. Yeah, and give you the copyright. Yep. Now you're the publisher and you're the label. Yeah, you're the publisher, you're the label, you own all the rights, which means the sync negotiation is whatever you give yourself, which is nothing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I get to use it. Exactly, to use it. Um, and so you suddenly have that sort of great thing that sometimes you, you bump into a scenario where this can be simplified by just simply how the, the music is generated. Particularly when, if, if you want to use a famous song, I mean, good luck getting a hold of the music label to getting permission from them to use the yeah. song in your indie video game. They're not going to answer for you, yep. uh, you know, and good luck getting a hold of the publishing company if you can figure out who it is to, to get a sync license from them. And once you know how much they're going to want for it, you could probably hire a local composer to just write an original song. Yeah, and again, most composers can perform their own work yeah. in a recordation. Even if they can't, you can probably hire a yeah, local, hire a local band cover band to, cover to do it for you. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's and this is where I, I think when we talked about at the beginning of this and we said what we're going to try to do is, is give you this overview of copyright and why copyright is weird. This is why copyright is weird. It's Particularly in music. Right now, yeah, in, in, in music, when we have already hit, we're now talking about, okay, a, a mashup video. We have implemented three different licenses with potentially three different owners. Yeah. At least two different owners in most cases, it can, you know, stuff like that, but it may be three different owners. That's where it gets so weird. At the same time, we can very rapidly say in certain scenarios, we can make a scenario where this all drops down to one. Mm-hmm. And that's where it gets so weird is it's you have this exact same scenario where depending on how this thing was created, you have three parties and how it was created, you have one party mm-hmm. um, and all of them own rights. And so it's, how do we deal with, you know, that's where the weirdness comes from. Well, and one area that you've probably run into this in your lifetime, although not so much recently, is the famous Happy Birthday song. Yes. Which was partially under copyright up until a couple of years ago. And, and you may have noticed Well, it was asserted to be It was copyright. asserted to be, and rather than have lawsuits about it, although eventually was one, and that's why it's no longer under copyright, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the rights holders had, because that, that song was written in the 19th century. Yep. So the fact the, that it was... The song being the music. Well, there's the music and then the lyrics. And I've always yes. wondered how... I mean, there's only five words to the song. I mean, there's a creativity. Yep. That's a whole other question. But, you know, you almost never saw the Happy Birthday song sung in music because the royalty demanded for a sync license was absurd. Uh, and so nobody wanted to pay for it. Music, you know, movies are on a budget. They'd, I've anecdotally read that they'd sometimes ask for five figures or more. Yep. Especially ever, if you use ever it Ever wonder why those permission. restaurants don't always sing you Happy Birthday? They have their own versions of it. Yeah, because that song is not an ASCAP or BMI. Yes. <laughs> Uh, well, it's not anywhere now. It's been deemed public domain, I yeah. believe. So, so the, uh, you know, all bets are off. But you'd, you'd be surprised the stuff that is copyrighted versus not. Um, you know, the, like the Sesame Street theme song. I think people sometimes erroneously think that, oh, it's from the Smithsonian or it's from the you know, public broadcasting. It's all still copyrighted. Yeah. It's not owned by the government. It's owned by a private corporation, and, and it is copyrighted. Yep. The, and I'm talking about, we talked about mashups here, and I think another thing to also ta- think about when we're talking about sort of the creativity in mashups, this doesn't just happen in sort of the modern mashup. If we want to drop 
back and let's drop 30 years, you know, sort of in the past where we've, we don't really have the YouTubes, we don't really have the things like that. This still happened. It was called remixing. Mm-hmm. You know, you had dance club remixing. You had the sort of things that went on in conjunction with it where somebody would take a famous song and remix it. And there you bump into the, hey, is this a DJ modifying it, yeah. using a record and live, or was somebody actually re-singing a new version of it, which was a, a sort of totally different version of the song. Yeah, and, when, and when, you're, when you're doing club music live with a DJ, the issues are simpler because, again, yes. you're, you're, you know, you got public performance rights to the songs, and you can kind of mix them up, and, you know, you're, it's, it's not as big of a deal, right? It gets weird, though, when you start recording it. that kind of music and distributing it. And this actually was a major problem with the early R&B and rap industry in the yep. 80s is because the way that that music was originally put together, it kind of arose out of this 1970s scene, I think. I'm not a big rap fan, so if any of you are, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but the, the labels weren't 100% sure how to do some of this. Like sampling is, a, is was a big deal and still is to some extent in rap music. And, you know, uh, uh, Vanilla Ice, I'll, I'll start with that because it's probably one of the most famous sampling yep. cases where they used uh, the beginning of Under Pressure by Queen and David Bowie. Um, remixed a little bit but still sampled. Live, that's relatively easy to do. You pay the per- public performance yep. rights, uh, but since you're not distributing the sound recordings, really not, you know, it's, it's simpler. But once you want to record it, you need to get extra clearances, and the labels weren't always sure how to do that and didn't always do it correctly. And it resulted in a lot of litigation in the late 80s and early 90s until they figured out, okay, we got to clear all these clips too, yep. not just pay the publishing rights of the songwriter. And that was also, I think, part of that was just the evolution of music and that we have... Again, we started out the idea of, you know, hey, we started off with written music. We went to sort of this basic mechanical reproduction. Now we have the idea of mechanical reproduction being used to in secondary mechanical reproduction. Mm-hmm. That was something a player piano couldn't do. Yeah. That was something now that the recording technologies, as we think, and music, a record player couldn't do, that required the recording technology to be a little bit, you know, sort of on the far end. We're now talking sort of fairly modern recording technology. I mean, we're definitely talking sort of late 1900s mm-hmm. um, at this point in time as you know we're getting into it what does that mean and where this has really come into play and again when you look at at new technologies bumping into the copyright there have been a lot of places of just what is this thing yeah you know and i remember one of the early ones that bumped into it was ringtones yeah ringtones are a big deal right because your phone goes off usually where are you you're in public yeah so do you need to have a public performance license for but those at the songs? same time like a, a phone may not actually be able to generate all the notes it may only generate yeah. a sort of s- sampling of the notes that's a, sh- a you know it can't generate a full scale it's only generating half a scale so is it really playing the song mm-hmm. um, and sort of things like that. and actually there there was a large amount of copyright litigation and legislation yeah. specifically over ringtones and it the was eventually fixed tones. and I think they just applied the compulsory license to deal with the copies well part of it was that the phones can now reproduce the actual yeah, song yeah, I actual mean thing, how yeah. many of us have music on our iPhones you know I mean it can play the actual recording of the song yeah I learned the other day I called my wife because I couldn't find her and she was in the house somewhere and I learned that when I call her her phone plays the Imperial March from Star Wars <laughs> How appropriate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so one more thing I want to I want to uh, get in. Well, two more things actually. Uh, so here's an interesting question. We covered uh, let it let it snow and the publishing rights, and we've established that if you know if we're going to make this or or whoever did make it, you know should have to get permission from the composer and the lyricist, but. What about the performance? Normally, if it was you or I performing it, then it's just our performance. But in this case, who's performing the song? Yeah, it's it's Patrick Stewart. <laughs> Arguably, yes, it's Patrick Stewart and the rest of the and cast Jonathan of Star Trek: yeah. The Next Generation. Th- that cast is performing it unwittingly. Are they entitled to a royalty on this? In some and, way? and the thing that's particularly interesting about here is they did not record it. 
no, as this song. No, they didn't song, record it. But, but they, they did are, record every one of the lyrics to the song. Yeah, I, I don't have an answer to that one. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was Googling around to see if anybody had talked about this, and I think we should grab a summer intern and have them look into it. Like, I want to know, like, how, how would this play out? That That is a fascinating question. Yeah, there's, and this is where we are, I think, we're now today in conjunction with yeah. music law. And we've, we've pointed out all this weirdness, and you have to realize... All this weirdness is pre-YouTube, is pre-streaming, is pre-iTunes. Mm-hmm. You know, we are talking about, at that point in time, recording music meant CDs and cassette tapes. Yeah. You know, and we were we were bumping into technologies where, again, like the, the ringtone sort of thing, where we have machines that can't reproduce the song correctly becoming machines that can. can. Um, you know, when we're looking at it today, we have all these kind of things. And I think that the, a good place to sort of finish this presentation up is... Today, a lot of this, quite frankly, is being handled behind the scenes. It's not it handled necessarily by copyright legislation. I suspect one of the ways I suspect the way this would get resolved with the Star Trek performances is that really you also have to get the license rights to use the clips at all. Yep. And that's how the actors or or you know CBS or whoever would get compensated is through the license you would need to use the clips. And so although they would not maybe be the performers, I don't know who is, uh, but they would probably get yep. compensated at a minimum through the license to the and, and keep in clips. mind, it's sort of modern things as well. We just had the, the AMA, the American Music Modernization Act. Mm-hmm. Um, the One of the things that came out of that was the recognition that sound engineers also now participate in the yeah. creation of a song. A sound engineer is mixing sounds together produced by another artist. Wait a minute, didn't we just describe a mashup? Yeah. <laughs> um, how does that play There's in? What is a sound there, engineer? Right? Yeah. Well, so one more thing to, to bring up, because we get this question a lot, too, and the question go, is, is along the lines of, yeah, but how does Weird Al do what he does? <laughs> and I think that applies here, because if you watch the Let It Snow one, or the Make It So, um, not all the words in that song were ever spoken in Next Generation. So yep. there's one point where I think it's, I brought some uh, corn for popping, and instead I brought some uh, tea Earl Grey hot. Like, <laughs> yeah. you see, it's something like that instead. At one point, uh, they, they, they obligatory, you know, mix in a shut up, Wesley. You know, <laughs> um, sorry, Will. Um, <laughs> we love Will, really, we, we love do. You, Will. Uh, so they, they changed the lyrics and the compulsory license uh, rules. Um, say that you're, you know, you're allowed to make a, a performance. They can't stop you. You can record it. You can distribute it. Uh, but the performance can't depart very much from you know, sort of the general feel and, and tenor of the original. There's natural variations for you know, creative license, but you know, changing the lyrics completely to a different song or taking a song done in one style and doing it in a completely different style is not clearly sanctioned by those rules. And I think it's kind of like a fair use analysis where how much variation is too much is, is hard to say. Uh, and, you know, something like this, I would think probably you're okay. But Weird Al doesn't just change the lyrics. He completely rewrites the song yeah. and makes it a polka song. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> half the time, yes. So it's, it's not even clear that the compulsory license terms would cover him. And, you know, whether it's a fair use or whether he could get away with it anyway, as a practical matter, he goes out and gets permission yeah. from everybody. That's, let's face it, we're not going to take it anymore as a polka song was one of the most hilarious things yes. I ever encountered in the 80s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or what was the Alanis Morissette one he did? Um, she had, like, a really angry, like, like, um, like, like bitter song. Yes, and I can't think of it. It's, it's on. I can think of the album, but I can't think of what I can, the song I can, is. I can hear the song on my head, but I, I can't perform it now or we'll get in trouble. Um, but you know what I'm talking <laughs> it's about. It's on Bitter Pill. I know that's the album. Yeah, yeah it was, like, the, the track <laughs> everybody's heard. Um, 
Oh, you ought to know. You ought to know. That's you ought to know. it. Yeah. There it is. That's on Bitter Little Pill is the album. Yeah, but th- that also as Polka was was priceless. Uh, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of issues here, uh, and the same basic analysis would um, would apply to Call Me Maybe. Um, so Kirk raised an interesting point though. This is on YouTube. It's been viewed uh, probably millions of times. It comes out every holiday season, and it's still there. So. Are Khan and Stein getting paid? Are, 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 you know, is Brent Spiner getting a royalty well, and, and for this? I think one of the things we're going to bump into in conjunction with this is, in some sense, we don't know. And I think part of what it is is I do know there has been settlements with YouTube and major music labels and with other things where artists are compensated for use of their material yeah. on YouTube in certain ways. YouTube in particular YouTube has in particular, basically yes. a content monitoring engine where if you are a, a rights holder, you can submit your content to them. They use some AI to try to find things that have of it and then they tell you that it's there and yep. you can do one of a couple things you can either say you know nuke it from orbit is yep. one option or <laughs> it's only way to be sure yeah or you can get some skin in the game with youtube's monetization model and collect a royalty off of it and, and just monetize it uh, and i think there's a third option i forget what it is i i, I looked into this at one point yep. but basically this this these legal issues have all been sort of absorbed privately through these these commercial yep. relationships between content you know owners and content distributors like YouTube and it's all just kind of done by contract now which really is how the music industry has operated to a large extent throughout its entire life we have this bad habit of introducing new music legislation right before a massive sea change in how it works so we had a copyright act in 1909 right before radio and right before you know consumer recording <laughs> technology and they and the industry almost immediately set about coming up with a new act and they yep. didn't get to it until 1976 right before VCRs and you know so yeah. and so well, you know, we got to wonder what's going to happen after the music modernization yeah. so now act. the MMA oh. is out just wait for something weird to happen in the next 10 years it's going to change everything <laughs> make all the rules obsolete the minute that we got them. yeah so anybody who's looking to you know obsolete spotify you know there you go it's your uh, your your idea you got about 10 years to do it because that seems to be the the historical yeah. plot. Well, there's a whole separate set of, of rights differences between streaming uh, services that lets you pick what you want to listen to versus like a Pandora where yep. you just sort of pick a channel and it picks it for you. And the way the rights break out is differently. Also, the royalty rates for you know digital plays are way, way, way lower than for terrestrial plays. So yep. although there is some royalty stream there, I talked to an artist once who said that you've got to get like a couple hundred in most cases yep. digital plays to collect a buck. Well, they just said, I've I heard they just had the, the founder of Spotify was just on the Freakonomics Radio podcast and I know they presented a statistic there where they said the highest paid artist on Spotify last year was Drake, and he made, I think it was $33 million off of Spotify. That seems like but, an absurdly large amount of money given the royalty rate, well, but then, it is Drake. But, it is, it is the, <laughs> but the average on Spotify is $100. Yeah, that seems, yeah. And so when you think about the idea that the average is 100 and the high end is $33 million, what what does that distribution look like? I'm going to guess it is very bottom heavy with a with a tall tail. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the very you know, and end. stuff like that. And so it's just I think it's a, it, that, you know I actually found that statistic to be just fascinating. Yeah, because I think there there was a lot of recognition of like wait a lot of artists make a lot of money on this and the answer is yes they clearly do but how many artists really do and part of it's just because there's so much music I remember for a long time I don't know if it was Pandora or Spotify but one of them there was a system out there where you could get where you could actually as part of the subscription service you could sign up for a secondary service with a secondary company and the only music it would play was music from one of the streaming services that had never been played yeah. across the streaming service and as soon as it finished playing on your system it delivered 
deleted it from their database. I should actually point out, like <laughs> those of you who are musicians, you you can get into this. Like you you don't have to go so far as to sign on with a major label. I mean, you, you can if, yeah. if you're lucky enough, but uh, you can you get get some skin in the game yourself. You can just go to Sound Exchange. They are the the digital public performance rights, you know, sense, an, yeah. analog to ASCAP. Sign up there and get your music out there and, and collect your 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 pittance of royalties you're going to get for the handful of plays you get. You can go to ASCAP and BMI and, and get your stuff in there, but you know you're not going to get anything until somebody plays your stuff. So yep. I, I do know I, I do know of musicians who go and get their stuff all registered with all these organizations just to collect whatever they've got coming their way. Uh, the, the one guy I know that's on Sound Exchange has been on it for for ages, yeah. and he's collected maybe twenty five cents. And I do believe part of it is that there there are certain forms of the license where they don't worry about what particular songs are playing. It's just by it's like the size of the location and things like that, and they just pay every artist a percentage based upon other plays. So even if you have zero plays at that location, even if you have zero plays total, you may still get some minimal license yeah. for simply having it on ASCAP and the fact that somebody might play it somewhere. We had a whole separate topic we wanted to cover, too, about why there doesn't seem to be, you know, this this industry is, is regulated by the government, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of political passion. Like when there's copyright term extensions, everybody gets really mad and yells about it. But you know, beyond that, the, the most recent act that passed, you know, we have a, we have what I would call a somewhat contentious political environment right now. But the MMA, you know, did you hear anything about it? Did you hear anybody yeah, was, from either party or the popular. administration? Yeah, it just kind of kind of kind of got signed, and nobody said a word about it. Um, uh, and that, you know, I don't I don't know if that's good or bad or not. I you know don't know enough to say. But it's interesting that nobody wanted to touch it with a ten foot pole, whereas in 1909, there is extensive congressional debate over how player pianos are going to be handled. Yep. And it just makes you wonder if the issues now, you know, the industry has matured so much that, you know, I think I think Congress kind of tends to just look at them and say, what are you doing now? Is everybody reasonably happy with it? Yep. Okay, then that, that is now and the And what law. we had bumping in here is that I think there was a lot of concern of just how exactly are streaming services getting held? Because there's arguments that streaming services are more like terrestrial radio. There's arguments that they're more like recordings. And so it was, we need to resolve that because it either one could potentially be reasonable. Yep. And I think the answer to it was is all the players in the game, were while they had their own issues, were much more interested in, we need to pick one, and once we pick one, we can all build our business models around whatever it needs to be. I think Congress probably is also a little gun-shy because the last couple of times they've waded into this substantively, <laughs> they've pretty much killed entire digital industries. Digital audio tape. <laughs> yeah, so the digital audio tape, or digital audio recording tape act, also known as DART, um, was an attempt to deal with this with the private copying levy, which I guess that did work for CDs okay, although I think most people don't, didn't understand it and just bought the cheaper yes. <laughs> non-music CDs because they're like, I'm not going to get sued. Um, we'll talk about that sometime. But you know, with the digital audio tapes, we're a promising new high-quality recording technology. First time we really have true digital recording. That's yeah. what we got to keep in mind. Everything prior to this is analog recording. And long story short, Congress said, well, we better deal with that, and they did, and they basically killed it. Yeah. And so there's this royalty stream that's associated with the sale of you know blank darts and uh, uh, you know, and the copyright office has been for the last thirty years now, twenty years. Twenty years, I think it is. Twenty years. It's been since the nineties, yeah, right? Yeah, nineties, early nineties act. Twenty-five years. They've had to manage this royalty fund that's got virtually nothing in it, and I think they're trying to get rid of it. Yep. Uh, but you know, it imposes obligations on them. We all have to pay for it. The copyright office is notoriously badly funded. So you know, there's. 
There's issues with that, and you know, and then when the when you know when Napster and all that stuff happened, there was a lot of lobbying activity to try to get Congress to step in and deal with it. And they, you know, they gave us the DMCA, which you know dealt with some problems, introduced others, but they've really seemed to be reluctant to get involved on a policy level. And I, I suspect it's a mixture of political reasons. There's not a lot of passion from the public about yeah. it. They're not hearing about it in their offices, so you know they're not going to pay attention to it. Uh, and it's just gotten so complicated that that you know they don't even know what to do. And that's I think the thing. And again. The, the real point of this episode, and again, from just sort of what we'd heard from some listeners and things like that, was there was a lot of comment of just sort of, can you talk about this? And and I always no, I like to talk about, I like to talk about music and copyright, copyright generally, but music and copyright in particular, of the idea of this is where law really can get complicated. Because this is a law that, again, as, we, as I pointed out, how many of you currently listening to this podcast are in your car and could hit a button and immediately begin listening to the radio? Where and maybe you already have because yeah. we're you born. may have access to a subscription service. You can listen to yeah. any song you've ever heard right now, and and those type of things. And if, and if you don't, you, you can buy it and have it streaming. Interacting at that instant, you are interacting with an extremely complex copyright legal system as well as an extremely complex compensation system for whatever just came on, mm-hmm. and you, you we don't see that. It's it's all hiding in the background and. I think that's a fascinating sort of idea of just this is a thing you interact with every day, but you have most people have barely understand exactly. You and how the hundreds of people in cars around you are just shifting little tiny amounts of money around. You yes. know, you, you turn on your Pandora and like are. skip, skip, <laughs> skip, skip. I mean, I, I don't know how that works, but presumably the more you listen, at some point a royalty is triggered, right? Like you guys are 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 producing all kinds of economic activity, which is all being handled by computers and contracts and and things that that you know legislation. And even the even even the regulatory system is just utterly ill-equipped to handle. If we had to run all this stuff through a regulatory body, you know, the copyright rate board sets the compensation rates by that, that you know that are delegated to it. You know, and if you're not happy with that, you can go to the Southern District of New. I think it's SDNY, right? SDNY, That's yeah, the rate court. Yeah. So there, you know, there's there's that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's it's an insanely complicated system, and I. I'm, I'm guessing that this podcast probably brought that point home pretty effectively. Hopefully it did, because and, and hopefully we didn't confuse you too much. I mean, well, I'm sure we thing, did. I got confused just in the course of trying to remember how all this stuff works. Yeah. I do every time. It's such a complicated area. And again, part of this was to point out that there is a lot of confusion. There's a lot of stuff in this, and maybe this is an episode you want to go back and listen to again and try to work through it. Part of the thing for us talking about it as well is like you have to understand how sync license works to really understand how recording yeah. license works to really understand how you know music license works and what's the lyricist versus what's a songwriter and and sort of all these. In- it's it's really hard to piece all this together also without a good grounding in copyright generally. Like one of the questions I, I got from somebody talking about this once is, well, so what, what about the example where you're just in a room with your friends recording uh, or not recording, just jamming, and you all come up with a song together? If there's no copyright, then nobody owns the song, right? And the answer is correct. So then what's to stop me from going out and just performing it on my own? Nothing. You can. Well, then I'm just going to register a copyright on it. You can't. Originality. Yeah. You didn't come up with it. You all did together. Y'all did together. So it's all the y'alls <laughs> or none of y'alls. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. And that's, it, it, again, it's the music is something and again you know we have to think about the fact that how long ago was music invented by the human race you know I mean and arguably we didn't even invent it I mean birds have yeah, music it, you know frogs have music it predates written human history yeah it definitely predates written human history it's so ubiquitous to sort of being a person in, in the world you know being a human yeah. in the world Yet we have this extremely complicated law regulating it because we recognize the fact that there's, we need a value to encourage people to create it in a certain way. Mm-hmm. But 
because of that, it's become incredibly complex. The technology advances faster than the law can possibly yeah. keep up with. And maybe that's why we just don't see a lot of regulatory activities. Is because, as I said, by the time they pass a law, it's out of date. Yeah, and I think a lot of it's also, and again, what I was sort of pointing out and I harped on a couple times during the course of this is a lot of what we see developing in copyright and music law is we see it react to the change in technology and just how does this change in technology mean we need to handle yeah. this? Interestingly, I, w- I would argue that copyright in some respects responds more to advances in technology as a legal regime than yeah. even patents do. I think that's very true. I think it responds very, and it responds very much to the idea of when there's a change in technology, we need to sort of clarify the law. But at the same time, as we pointed out, sometimes that's done in advance, which tends to be disastrous. Yep. Most of the time, it's actually done retroactively. Yeah. And just sort of, this is what everybody worked out we wanted it to be, so then we just codified it. And that, I think, is why we may be having a lot of not debate in copy right now, is because we had that, it worked with the player piano. Now we look at it and say it will continue to work, you know, if we if yeah. we look at it, you know, the MMA, the Music Modernization Act, you know, when it came down, I don't think there's anything in there anybody really disagrees with. I think if you were to ask all the people in the industry, they'd all say, no, I think generally this is a good thing yeah. because it simply makes law what we were all doing anyway, and it now makes sure you sort of can't screw somebody underneath it because it wasn't law. If I have one takeaway from this, it's that cover bands exist because of the player piano. (laughs) (laughs) Basically. Speaking of music, there it is, and it's time to go. We have more music topics to cover. Um, We we might get into Weird Al a little bit more um, and maybe talk about how music piracy works, but uh, I I know there's a lot more to cover with this topic, uh, so we, we may return to it. But I think for the next one, we're looking at maybe talking talking about open source software and how that works. No, I, we've had a lot of just concern, you know, listener interest in. Yeah, people, especially in developers. So that, that may be a more tech-heavy episode. So for those of you who are not really programmers, we'll try and make it accessible. But uh, open source licensing is a little odd in that the, the way that the license uh, drafters construe it is really tightly tied to how software is implemented. So that may be a, a tech-heavy episode. But there's also a lot of internet mythology about open source licenses that aren't true. So... We, uh, we may uh, tackle that. Um, so look for that the next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at lggpodcast.com. It has links to our various platforms where you can download prior episodes and get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and by email. Uh, subscribe to the podcast on the platforms. Give us a review, and that helps us find new listeners. If you're looking for me, I am on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and Kirk is at D- or Kirk DMN. <laughs> That's right. all for today. We'll see you next time. Lauren, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri.